morning. My name is Audrey and I have the joy of being the pastoral intern here at Artisan. <clears throat> uh, I've been doing that since September, but um, especially now in the summer, I've been able to take on a little bit more with Scott McTaggart being on sabbatical. And uh, if you are connected to him or his family at all, you'll know that they're on a cross country, coast to coast RV trip. And um, uh, if you follow them on social media, you'll also know that they, they uh, having some bumps in the road in that. So just, you know, let's keep them in our prayers. Um, they put a lot of hard work into it and a lot of excitement into that. So I really hope that they get to make it coast to coast. Yeah, in the meantime, I'll be here. It's really lovely to be back together after two weeks of not being together because our picnic last Sunday for the long weekend got rained out. Um, so it's a little weird. We had like a week off and it was, I don't know. I don't know if I should call it a holiday because it was a long weekend or just a rainy day, but I hope you got to rest. I hope you still got to Sabbath. Uh, to refresh you a little bit, two weeks ago, we heard Jobin David, the executive director of Jacob's Well, which is kind of just around the corner on Powell. He spoke to us on Luke 9, 51 to 62, which marks a turning point in the gospel of Luke's telling of Jesus's ministry, because it's there that Jesus sets his feet or his face toward Jerusalem, which is telling us that this is beginning of the end, kind of. This is um, the point where he journeys towards his death at that point on. So to recap what happens uh, in Luke 9, 51 to 62, what Jobin taught us, was that Jesus sends his disciples ahead of him to a village of the Samaritans to make a space ready for him. But the Samaritans didn't receive Jesus. So the two brothers, James and John, sons of Zebedee, or sons of thunder, sometimes they're called, they asked Jesus if they should command fire to come down from the sky to consume the Samaritans, which for the record kind of makes them good Jewish men at that point because they really believed that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was going to take over Jerusalem and be crowned and he was going to be this, this kind of regular earthly king in some sense because that's their framework for what a king is, for what a king of Jerusalem is. So that's what they were anticipating. And that is you know, what they thought it was based on what the prophets had foretold. They had good reason to think that. But Jesus rebukes them and says, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus knows how the prophecies will actually be fulfilled. And it's not the way the disciples expect. And this is all important for setting the stage for a passage today, which is Luke 10, 25 to 37. Um, usually just referred to as the story of the Good Samaritan, which I'm guessing, guessing, whether you grew up Christian or not, or knowing Christians or not, you've probably heard of this story. Um, there's variations of it in different religious texts as well. It's a pretty well-known story. Um, it also includes one of the most popular and referenced commands in the whole Bible, um, from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, which is, the command, which is the command to love the Lord our God with our whole selves and to love our neighbors as ourselves. So when I first saw that this was the gospel text in the uh, liturgical calendar for today, I very foolishly thought, oh, I've got this. Look at me easy, super familiar, super easy, solid gospel. It'll be fine. 
And I actually started a week and a half early too because of the church picnic, uh, which is a good thing because I needed it. It was difficult to figure out how to read it and preach it in a way that impacts us the way the story initially would have to its first hearers. When we are so familiar with something, it's hard to hear it with fresh ears and to let it impact us and change us the way it's supposed to. I think of the story of the Good Samaritan kind of like what fluoride is in my tap water. Do we know this, that there's fluoride in our tap water? And it's this thing that prevents cavities and it's changed the dental industry apparently. And it's one of those things that I regularly take in that benefits me, but I've stopped being aware of the benefits. I'd only become aware of the benefit if it were to go away. Even the fact that the water that comes out of the taps in my house are all drinkable. It's so common, it's so familiar. It's difficult for me to find the meaning and the amazement in that in the morning as I have a cup of water. So with this in mind, let's get into our text today. I'm gonna read it from the Common English Bible Version or the CEB just to see what new contrast that might come up from the NIV that we read this morning. This is gonna be on the screen for you to follow along. Hopefully it's readable enough. So it starts in verse 25 of Luke 10. A legal expert stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? He responded, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I translated that portion from the Greek for my own version, which reads, you must love the Lord your God from your whole heart, with all your soul and self, with all your might and will, and with all your thoughts and intentions, and love the one near you as yourself. Going back to the CEB for verse 28. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. The legal expert wanted to prove that he was right. So he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He encountered thieves who stripped him naked, beat him up and left him near death. Now it just so happened that a priest was also walking down the road When he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. Likewise, a Levite came by that spot, saw the injured man, and crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. A Samaritan, who was on a journey, came to where the man was. When he saw him, he was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to him, bandaged his wounds, tending them with oil and wine. Then he placed the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took two full days' worth of wages and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, take care of him, and when I return, I will pay you back for any additional costs. What do you think? Which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered thieves? Then the legal expert said, the one who demonstrated mercy toward him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. There's a pretty clear sandwich style structure to this passage with their interactions happening right before and right after the story with this Good Samaritan account happening in the middle. 
It starts with the expert in the Jewish law asking Jesus what he needs to inherit eternal life, or we could say what he needs to do to be saved, right? This is pre-Jesus on the cross, his life, death, and resurrection. This is just during his life. So to have eternal life is to be saved. And why an expert is even asking Jesus this should perk us up a little bit. If he's an expert, he knows the answer, right? And we see that he knows the answer. So it's not some humble student sitting at Jesus' feet. It's more of a desire to debate at a high intellectual level, which I'm sure we've all seen some Christians do from time to time. I'm at Regent College. I can attest that I have seen and possibly participated in some of those. Jesus doesn't really engage with the invitation to debate, but instead responds with the questions, well, what does the law say? How do you interpret it? In verse 26, this is, and this is key to understanding what's going on here, and it's actually the key for us to be able to see the true invitation here. Because the legal expert answers correctly. He knows the law. He knows his Bible, just like a bunch of us Christians know our Bibles really, really well. The expert knows that it all comes down to loving God with every aspect of our created selves and loving all those who are made similarly in God's image. But knowing isn't the same as understanding. Knowing something intellectually isn't the same as knowing something in our whole selves. Understanding the words on a page requires us to be mindful of the lenses, the worldviews, the assumptions, the cultures. The lenses we wear change the way we read something. We know we understand the law, the Bible, when we understand it isn't just some answer on a page in a book. It's when we understand that the law is actually just the way to live, and the way to live is to love. I can say this because after the expert recites Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, Jesus tells him, you're right, do this and you will live. You will live. Do this, love God with your whole created self and all created selves, and you will live. Loving is what gains us eternal life. It's what saves us. Typical to most experts I know who enjoy debating and sparring, when you don't engage with the arguing, the initiator tries again. And who exactly is my neighbor? Asked the expert in verse 29. And then notice how Jesus responds. He begins telling a story. Jesus is so wise and perceptive, he knows intellectual sparring is not going to get this expert to truly understand. So he uses narrative to do that. He uses art to do that. An artisan. This sometimes is the role of art in the world, to translate knowing to understanding. This is why art and creating is so powerful in the midst of suffering and conflict and tragedy. This is why we need art. This is why art is holy. It's a big reason why we're called artisan. Jesus now tells us the familiar story and there's nothing really in the text, in the Greek or something that I can point out that we haven't heard before. But let's look at it again, asking ourselves where we have usually tended to place ourselves in the story. So when you're reading it, where have you naturally placed yourselves? And today, let's try placing ourselves in a different role somewhere else. So to help us do that, let me first share the perspective of someone who's an expert on ancient Jewish culture, biblical scholar Amy Jill Levine. She was quoted in two different commentaries I read, 
And this quote has stuck to my mind the way gummy candy stick to my molar. I can't get them out, and that's why I have cavities. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that was a generous laugh. Thank you. Um, so here's the quote from biblical scholar Amy Gillivine. We should think of ourselves as the person in the ditch and then ask, is there anyone from any group whom we'd rather die than acknowledge she offered help or he showed compassion? More, is there any group whose members might rather die than help us? If so, then we know how to find the modern equivalent for the Samaritan to recognize the shock and possibility of the parable in practical, political, and pastoral terms, we might translate its first century geographical and religious concerns into our modern idiom. She goes on to give the example, this is shortly after 9-11, of someone from Al-Qaeda helping an American. This is shortly after 9-11. So in short, and to sum up what she says, is there anyone's help that we would reject if we were the person dying in the ditch or refused to acknowledge as having been helpful to us? And then secondly, is there anyone who would rather die than accept our help? These are the dynamics at play here, especially in light of what Jobin was teaching us two weeks ago, especially in light of the passage that comes before us where the Samaritan village rejects Jesus. It's crucial for understanding it here. And I'll admit, when I usually read the story, I think of myself first as watching the whole thing go down as an observer. I stand back and see what's happening. Maybe that makes me like the innkeeper or something, someone who comes in after the fact. And when I read Levine's quote and took the story in a new way, reflecting on the first part of the quote and thinking of myself as the one in the ditch and wondering whose help would I refuse if I was naked beaten up and close to death in a ditch. If I'm honest, reading this as a fairly petite woman, the first answer that comes to mind is basically any man I don't know. If I'm naked and close to death, I would worry about a man that's unfamiliar to me approaching me in that particular moment. I don't love that that's the first thing that came to mind, by the way. This is an example of being aware of the perspectives and situations and assumptions we have when we read the text. I can only read and interpret as a woman because that's what I am. I read influenced by my experiences and by the experience of those closest to me. And it truly breaks my heart that this is the very first and immediate answer. Thinking of the second part of Levine's question, whose help or compassion might I refuse to acknowledge, where it would be difficult and work on my pride to admit that someone had been compassionate or kind. There are many more examples that come to mind. Uh, people I want to maybe write off or where it's just easier to see them as a stereotype. The past few years have been rife with divisiveness between political parties, stances on social justice and creation care, how we treat the human body when it comes to things like masks and, van and vaccines, just to name a few ways that humans and their bodies are being regulated. I mean, 
Just pick one of these things and think of someone who disagrees with you on it. Could you admit when they have done something compassionate or merciful toward you? Would you be able to acknowledge that? And lastly, Levine asks us who might refuse our help if we were to approach them at their most vulnerable, exposed, in pain, struggling to live, incredibly vulnerable. This is the hardest question to ask ourselves because it makes us look at how we might be a threat to others. Personally, my sincere fear is that if I were to cross the road to help someone in such a dire and vulnerable situation wearing my college sweatshirt with a little cross logo on it, or maybe holding a Bible, or just generally something that identifies me as a Christian, that they would be afraid of me approaching them, especially someone currently being rejected by the loudest voices in the church. I wept thinking about this, preparing for this morning. Thinking of all those who are hurt by the church that they would perceive just me being a Christian as someone who would cause further harm and not as someone who'd show compassion. I've traveled to Florida a couple of times with some friends of mine, and anytime Florida has come up in the news lately, this is the scenario that comes to my mind. If I were to approach someone who identifies as LGBTQ+, they were to see me being a Christian in some way that they would think that I'm there to hurt them and not to love them. And keep in mind, not only did the Samaritan stop to help the Jewish man laying in the ditch, but he bandaged his wounds, anointed them, and put the wounded man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn to rest and recover. And not only that, he used two days' worth of wages to pay for the wounded man's rest and recovery, offering to cover whatever other costs might come up on top of that. For me, before deductions, it's about $230, plus whatever else might come on top of that. And it doesn't sound like a lot, <laughs> because I'm a student. Um, but for me, that's a fair chunk of money. That's the difference between making rent for a month or not. I encourage you to calculate what two days worth of wages is for you too, and to see how it would make you feel to give that up for someone that sees you as an enemy someone that you maybe struggle to love. Could you show that kind of compassion and sacrificial love to someone who you would normally avoid? Someone you see as getting it entirely wrong. Have you ever shown that kind of Jesus love to someone? Have you ever received that kind of compassion from someone you would normally avoid? What did that feel like in that moment and later on in hindsight? Were you able to recognize the common goodness we all share, the common goodness also existing in them, all of us being made by the good creator? Would someone who maybe perceives you at first glance to be threatening, maybe stereotypes you in a certain way, be able to receive such compassion from you? Has this ever happened to you? What did that feel like? having your help either being refused or received by someone who sees you as belonging to the wrong side. 
If the story of the Good Samaritan is still difficult to interpret in a way that impacts you, that disturbs and creates some change, I encourage you to just Google real life Good Samaritans. This is where things feel more uplifting. As far as we know, but there are nonetheless still many real life Good Samaritan stories. One website I found that I ended up spending a lot of time on after crying a bunch was mindfulteachers.org and it listed several stories of incredible grace and mercy and love being demonstrated between two groups or people who are in opposition to each other, either in a general way or in a specific way. One story featured was reported initially by the New York Times and it was of a black state trooper who was helping a sick white supremacist protester. Another story was from during the gathering restrictions in Germany not too long ago, where a Christian church opens its doors to Muslim neighbors during Ramadan so that they were able to pray while gathering 50 people or less. Lastly, in 2020, not too long after the police murdered George Floyd, a black man named Dalen McClee heard a large boom so loud that it shook his apartment. A couple years prior to this, Dalen had filed a lawsuit against police for a wrongful arrest for a situation where he had managed to disarm a man with a gun only to be arrested as the culprit instead. It was a case of racial profiling and his arrest featured excessive force as well. So on the day of the large boom that shook his apartment, he went outside to see a car crash involving a police cruiser and instantly ran to pull an officer from the burning, mangled car, pulling the wounded officer across the street to safety. He pulled the wounded man to the other side of the road. In the article by USA Today, it reports that Dalen, age 31, said it wasn't a complicated decision to help another human being. But even some of his close friends wondered whether he hesitated because of his previous interactions with a few law enforcement officers. Dalen is here quoted saying, no, there is value in every human life. We are all children of God and I can't imagine watching anyone burn, he said. No matter what other people have done to me or other officers, I thought this guy deserves to make it home safely to his family. So going back to the story again, let's read what Jesus says at the end in verses 36 to 37. He asked the legal expert, so what do you think? Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, was the neighbor of the man who encountered thieves? And priest and Levite are synonymous, by the way. And the legal, the legal expert replies, it's the one who demonstrated mercy toward him. Jesus responds saying, go and do likewise. Which is very similar to what he already said in the beginning. He said, do this and you will live. As Christ followers, we are meant to be following Jesus so closely that we become like him. That by seeing Jesus's unending mercy and compassion motivated by his deeply sacrificial love, we are in turn changed and transformed into merciful, compassionate people compelled by that same sacrificial love that exists inside of us, thanks to God's spirit. That's the good news and the invitation here, that we are loved 
so deeply and so wonderfully by God and can be corrected as mercifully gently as the legal expert was. And therefore, because God's love for us is so great and we have the Holy Spirit, we love God, becoming more and more like God as we follow the example given by Jesus. And in turn, we show that same insane otherworldly love to all those around us, all others. Not out of blindness for the wrongs of the world, not out of blindness to the injustices or the very real threats. This isn't telling us to go and be foolish or careless, but rather to show mercy and love for all humanity in the same way that Jesus has shown us mercy and love on the cross and still now in our daily, messy, ordinary time lives. One last quote to close us off for this morning, this time from Douglas Moo. Jesus's interlocutor asks, who is my neighbor? That is, whom do I have to love? Jesus responds, in effect, don't ask who is your neighbor, ask rather to whom I can be a neighbor. One of my favorite things that we do each Sunday, and we do it each Sunday, is come to the table and break bread and partake of the cup together. And being a third way church, we recognize that there's probably a lot of things in this room where we can disagree with each other. And still, we choose to show love and compassion and mercy and come to the table to be reminded of what Christ did for us so that we can show the same love to the people we break bread with and to show the same love to the people outside these doors. We go to work, we come home, and we're commuting, and we're commuting. So, as we come to the table, I'm going to go through our table litany and invite you to join me in the old parts. The gospel is the good news that God our Father, the Creator, out of His great love for us,